Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, everyone. Judge Andrew Napolitano here for Judging Freedom. Today is Tuesday, August 15th, 2023. Larry Johnson joins us now. Larry, always a pleasure. Thank you for sharing your time uh, with us. You wrote a very interesting piece. I know we're going to get a little philosophical here, but I I believe that our audience wants to hear that. How do wars end? Is there sort of a myth that one side wins 100% and the other side surrenders unconditionally? Uh, no, not always. And uh, the record shows that uh, most wars will end with a negotiated settlement, uh, primarily because both sides are exhausted or they don't see any way out that they can win. Uh, a smaller number are uh, settled through unconditional surrender, as we saw at the end of World War II, uh, as we saw at the end of the American Civil War. Uh, note that World War One was not really an unconditional surrender, even though portrayed as such. It was really a negotiated settlement, and uh, Germany negotiated badly on its behalf. Uh, and then there's always sort of the stalemate option that nobody can go anywhere. So I, my, my point was in assessing what's going on right now in Ukraine, I think we're headed towards this will be one of those rare unconditional surrender moments because Ukraine has no ability to be able to force a negotiated settlement. Uh, and Or if it accepts a negotiated settlement, it's gonna mean that it's gonna do a complete 180 on all of the things that it insists are essential, non-negotiable so items. If if this is a an unconditional surrender, we have a lot of uh, issues. You, uh, Colonel McGregor, uh, Scott Ritter, uh, Ray uh, McGovern, uh, and 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 our usual cadre have said the last thing Putin wants is to have to govern Ukraine. What what would replace Zelensky that the Ukrainians can live with and Putin will accept, if not a a Russian installed government? Well, one option I lay out as a possibility is a parallel with what happened at the end of the Civil War. Uh, the political leadership of the Confederacy had ba- basically collapsed. Uh, they were still being defiant, insisting they were going to continue fighting. But uh, General Robert E. Lee recognized that while some of his troops had the desire to continue fighting, they simply did not have the means, both through logistics, ammunition, weaponry. Uh, and so he, he, he surrendered. And, and it was an unconditional surrender that Grant did provide some uh, some concessions, but they were not significant. So I think what you're looking at in Ukraine 
is uh, the, the generals finally intervening at some point and look, this slaughter of our troops is going to stop. We cannot continue to lose like this. And Zelensky will be irrelevant because Zelensky is a puppet in all of this anyway. He's not the political force. He simply represents the powerful money that's behind him, people like Kolomoisky. So uh, he doesn't, he's not in a position to call the shots. Uh, Zeluzhny or Sursky, uh, two of the generals, they don't necessarily get along, but one of them or some other generals we've not heard of, at least in public, could, could step forward and enforce a, a settlement with Russia. Is it fair to say that Zelensky is not only a tool of the oligarchs and whatever other political forces have brought him and sustained him in power, but he's also a tool, you know where I'm going, of your former bosses, the Central Intelligence Agency. He may even be an asset of the CIA. Yeah, I think it's actually more likely he's close, he has a closer relationship with the Brits. But uh, the, you know, the United States and the Brits certainly share an interest in Zelensky. And we'll have, I'm sure they've made some promises to him, but uh, the history of U.S. and British intelligence agencies making promises to assets haven't always turned out so well. So, how, uh, um, how aggressive are the Brits? How aggressive is MI6? I'm starting to uh, feel that um, American intelligence almost believes the Brits are more uh, aggressive. When I asked uh, Ray McGovern if uh, Mossad or CIA were spying on Joe Biden in the White House, he said to me, it's more likely to be MI6. MI6 mm-hmm. spying on the American president in his residence and the CIA not doing anything about it or not doing it itself. Do I have that right? Well, the, the reason the CIA might not be doing anything about it is it would be unaware of it. Uh, if the intelligence service is good, it is able to collect that intelligence without giving up what it's doing. Uh, and the British have a much longer tradition of using intelligence operations. Candidly, the United States was sort of uh, a student at the knee of that instructor uh, coming into World War II. The United States didn't really have a history of of using uh, intelligence officers in an organized fashion. Uh, So it it became formalized, institutionalized in the aftermath of World War II and reflected heavily a British influence. Bringing us back to where we started. Uh, if the war were to end because uh, the Ukrainian generals decide this is just a slaughter, we can't go on anymore, uh, and if uh, President uh, Zelensky, fearful of his uh, political future and not ready to go to Paris or Miami or wherever his, his other homes are, uh, resisted that, would the CIA step in? Would it be involved uh, in the circumstances and terms uh, of a surrender? Uh, no, uh, it's going to CIA would have very limited influence on in that. If nothing else, it'd be pressing Ukraine not to do that and and threatening. You know, we'll withdraw our support, we'll withdraw our aid. And I think, you know, when Ukraine gets to that point, they won't care about that. Um, the agency's influence in the past has been closely tied with what the Brits have done. Uh, it's it's really been a symbiotic relationship. Uh, but we're not acting independent of the Brits. And the British connection with the Banderite uh, elements in Ukraine, you go back to the end of World War II. And the British settled far more Ukrainians in the UK than the United States did in uh, in this country. 
The other day, you and uh, Ray McGovern and Colonel uh, McGregor and I saw a photograph uh, of a Ukraine, I guess a squadron, or Ukraine military. There appeared to be about a dozen uh, of the most, at the most. They had a Ukrainian flag and a Nazi flag with mm-hmm. a Nazi swastika on it. A, yeah, yeah. were you surprised? B, do you know who the hell they were? C, why on earth would they be doing that? Now, that's actually a fairly old photo that came out about a year and a half ago. It's, it's it members of the Azov Battalion. So this this glorification of the Nazis has been a, a part of a minority of Ukraine's population in the West. The, everybody to the west of the Dnieper River, going over towards the Polish border. They have a history. Part of it was tied into Catholicism as well, the, the anger of the Catholics against the Eastern Orthodox Church uh, that was associated with the Soviet Union and with Russia. So uh, this legacy of celebrating all things Nazis has been passed down grandfather to father to son to grandson. It has, uh, you know, the videos were pretty prevalent all over the internet two, three years ago. YouTube's taken a lot of them down, but you could see annual celebrations Remember, it was 1942, 43, when von Wachter, the, the Nazi governor general, recommended creating an SS battalion out of Ukrainian volunteers. And that was done. So you had Ukrainians that were part of the, not just the German army, they were part of the Nazi SF, which was reflected mm-hmm. a higher level of ideological commitment. Does this, I don't want to get too deep into it. But does this variant of Nazism have the racism and uh, anti-Semitism yes. that the German oh, yeah. Nazism had? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, in fact, mm. there, there, there are several videos of uh, one of the leading members of uh, Asof going around uh, targeting homosexuals, targeting gypsies, beating them up on the streets. You know, the same, same kind well, of thing you saw with Hitler's surely President, surely President Zelensky himself raised as a as a Jew, I don't know if he practices, but he's culturally Jewish. Must sure. be aware of this. Yeah, but you know, this is judge when you when you look at the history in, in, in that part of the world. I even go back to World War II. Uh, there were several Jewish um, people who directly collaborated with the Nazis. Uh, I mean, even George Soros's father. Reportedly collaborated with the Nazis back in World War II. That's you know the how sort of how they escaped the Holocaust. Uh, you had you had Jewish leaders that were running major ghettos like the Lutz ghetto. That all the all the Jews ended up being exterminated there, including the guy who thought he was incurring favor with the Germans by running the place, and finally they ended up executing him as well. Um, I want to show you President Zelensky. Um... I won't say ranting, but reporting, whatever you want to call it, you can characterize it as you uh, see fit on corruption in Ukraine. It's almost <clears> like <throat> Claude Rains and Humphrey Bogart in Casablanca. There's gambling here? I'm shocked. Yeah. There are 112 criminal proceedings against officials of the territorial recruitment centers. 33 suspects, regional, city, and district military commissars, employees of the military medical commissions, abuses in different regions. Some took cash, some took cryptocurrency. That's the only difference. The cynicism is the same everywhere. Illicit enrichment, legalization of illegally obtained funds, illegal benefit, 
illegal transportation of persons liable for military service across the border. Our decisions are the following. We are dismissing all regional military commissars. Is he the head of the uh, corruption? <laughs> I thought you were going to show me a video of Joe Biden decrying anybody that was involved with selling foreign influence. Now, this is... This is... <laughs> This, this Wait a minute. All, of- we talked about, all we talked about was the weather. Hunter called me from <laughs> Kiev to ask me about the weather in D.C. <laughs> well, so here's Zelensky, who's an expert in the corruption. I mean, the reports about his, the wealth he skimmed off with homes in several locations around the world, including Miami Beach. Uh, so he's an expert in corruption. I think actually what he's doing here is pretty dangerous because Everybody knows that he's on the take and that other people are on the take, but those who are now being victimized, being used as examples to, uh, for punishment, uh, I bet you they have friends and relatives that will be seeking revenge. And because, you know, nothing the criminals hate more is hypocrisy. And this kind of hypocrisy from Zelensky is, uh, is truly galling. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Let me uh, show you President Zelensky attempting to be tempting to be serious, acting as if it's a foregone conclusion that Crimea will be returned to Ukrainian jurisdiction. And you have argued and argued persuasively World War III will occur before that happens. But right. here he is. Tell me what you think. Today, I held a meeting on the content of our return policy, specifically regarding Crimea and its reintegration. It is obvious that after the liberation of Crimea from occupation, economic opportunities, personal security for people, and a sense of real freedom, which has not been there since 2014, will return there. But all of this should not be just abstract. Every detail of the deoccupation of Crimea should have a specific meaning. How exactly normal life returns, what exactly this means for Crimea and for all our people. This should be clear to everyone. Step by step, we are making the deoccupation of Crimea more and more achievable and well thought out. Who but the most incredibly naive could take that seriously, Larry? I guess uh, his next subject was to talk about the Ukrainian space program and its plans to land on Venus. I mean, it's a, you know, there's a greater chance of that happening than Ukraine you know, retaking Crimea. They simply do not have the military force. They're entirely dependent upon the West for financial and military aid and ammunition and intelligence. Other than that, they, you know, they're, they're a pretty powerful unit. So uh, it's just, it's, it's delusional. And th- this is reminiscent 
uh, if you will, of Hitler in his bunker in the final days. The Russians are closing in and he's directing armies to go hither and yon, armies that don't exist. Uh, and that's what, that's what Zelensky is doing here. Um, how much longer do you think Zelensky and uh, his, his pretense of directing military activity will go on unimpeded? That is, before his senior generals say, enough's enough, I'm not sending my guys into a meat grinder anymore. I, I think he's got another four or five weeks tops. Uh, because as the fall rains come in, and it appears that this is going to be a much tougher winter than last winter, um, the, the level of slaughter that they've endured is, is not going to sit well with them. And so at that point, what you're looking at is a full mobilization, forced, coerced mobilization. And then you got to figure out where to train those troops. And then you got to figure out how you're going to cobble together another offensive without actually having... The, the means to succeed as the same situation they're in right now. Uh, Russia is not going to get weaker over the next six months. Ukraine is. If uh, General uh, Zaluzhny, the commander and his colleague who commands another part of the military, the two that don't get along, but they're the two senior people. Uh, decide that it, right. Thank you. Uh, decide that enough is enough. Will the CIA, from its surveillance, know that they have made that decision before it is put into effect? And will they do anything about it? Uh, I'm sure they will learn about it in advance, and I'm sure they will try to disrupt it. But let's remember the other player on the field here is Russia. Russia has far better human intelligence assets in the Ukrainian army than the CIA does. I'd make that case. One, because of language, one, because of history. Several of the officers, especially the senior officers, have gone through Russian military academies. So uh, just, just several, as, of the, the, several of the senior Ukrainian military officers uh -huh. are graduates of, say, Russia's West Point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is in some ways sort of similar to what happened in the American Civil War, where you had people fighting on either side who had been classmates together. So uh, Zaluzhny and Sursky, I believe, both have, have that kind of experience with uh, the Russian military. And I never underestimate the power of uh, the Russian intelligence service to go out and recruit folks. I want to read for you um, a, a portion of an op-ed from yesterday's Wall Street Journal written by your former neighbor and my former Fox News colleague, John Bolton. It's almost inconceivable that uh, Donald Trump was advised by John Bolton, but we yeah. know he was the uh, national security uh, advisor to President Trump, and he was the acting uh, UN uh, ambassador, I think, for a year or two under President George W. Bush. But here's, here's what he said. The administration's timid, haphazard approach to aid has fractured U.S. public support. Mr. Biden has compounded this problem with his insistence that the war is about Wilsonian abstractions of democracy versus authoritarianism. Theories about price caps and Russian oil have failed, and Western sanctions generally remain piecemeal and seriously unenforced. Well, he's right about the sanctions not failing, but as I <laughs> yeah. read this, I read this, uh, he's saying it's too little too late. We should have gone in there full force 18 months oh. ago. No, very true, but it's also... It, it, when you read through it and understand Bolton, he's admitting that he was wrong. 
which is shocking. You know, he'll never admit that he's wrong, but he, he always will lay it off on somebody else. But you know, number one, he's acknowledging that public support for the war in Ukraine in the United States has dissipated. A, ma a majority, approaching 60%, are now opposed to it, opposed to continued funding. That the sanctions haven't worked? No, duh. Some of us told, you know, pointed that out at the beginning, but you know, give give Bolton credit. He's he's coming around to it. The the problem is, as you go on in that article, he basically you know, it was like pushing for the start of a nuclear war, and and at that point he realized I think his mustache is getting in, in the way of the oxygen flow to his brain. I mean, John Bolton, a, a friend of mine, he he makes Lindsey Graham sound like you. I mean, he is just yeah. over <laughs> over over the top uh, with wanting to draw blood. Uh, you mentioned. Um, the American Disenchantment. Now, this is about 10 days old, but it's my uh, friend and former colleague, Martha McCallum, uh, interrogating uh, Admiral Kirby. And she begins by pointing out the, uh, the growing American disenchantment with the support for the war. Before you run it, Gary, uh, I am going to ask you when this is over how much we've spent. Joe Biden seems to indicate he needs another 24 billion. How much of that 113 billion has he spent? We can't get a straight answer from anybody, can we? No, no. All right. Here's here's the uh, clip of Admiral uh, Kirby with uh, Martha McCallum. This poll says 51 percent of the U.S. say uh, of those polled has the U.S. has done enough to stop Russian military actions in Ukraine. Forty eight percent say that uh, we should do more. Those numbers have moved over the past few months, John, in the direction yeah. of we've done enough to help. Well, look, I think, you know, sure, there's lots of people all over the world that, that want this war to end. And we understand that. Heck, the Ukrainian people want it to end. They want it to end more than anybody. They'd love to see this war over and have their cities not be bombed and their children not taken away and abducted. We all want to see it end. But I also think that the American people understand what's at stake here. It's bigger than just Ukrainian sovereignty, although that is first and foremost what it's about. It's about Mr. Putin. It's about sending a strong message to Russia that they can't just take another nation by force. And if he succeeds, Martha, I think American people, the American people understand that if we just walk away from this and Putin is able to subjugate Ukraine, where does it stop then? And if you think that the cost to the United States has been high in supporting Ukraine, think about what the cost would be in blood and in treasure if Mr. Putin feels empowered to go ahead and attack NATO's eastern flank. Then we're in it, and we're in it in a big way. I think the American people understand what's at stake here. Does this admiral even understand the basics? Putin is going no. to attack NATO's eastern flank. He's making the domino argument, the failed domino argument from the Vietnam years. Yeah. And, and, he, and he has trouble with math. If you look at the facts, the United States in 18 months has put more money and weapons and material into Ukraine than we did in Afghanistan over almost 20 year period, number one. Uh, number two, the amount of money we're spending there, it's not going, it's disappearing. And there, there is no inspector general process to monitor where that's going. So you've got weapons going out into the black market, probably going to wind up in places like Africa. We know they're winding up in the hands of the Mexican drug cartel. So, you know, he can keep up the happy talk. But since that interview from five, six days ago, the numbers of people who said we should not do more, we've done enough, it's grown. It's not diminished. That's going to continue to grow. And there's going to come that point where the members of Congress are going to be looking at an election in about uh, six, 14 months, 15 months, 
are going to say, oh, wait a second. I'm not going to continue to go pour money into this rat hole. How can we not know how much money the federal government has spent of that $113 billion <laughs> blank check that Mrs. Uh, Pelosi yeah. and Chuck Schumer gave the president? Uh, look, even the Pentagon doesn't know how much money it's spent. They keep going, oh, look, look what we found. We found some more money that we thought we had spent and we didn't. There, uh, the concept of accountability in Washington, it, it's a foreign idea. It has no residence. They've never seen it. They wouldn't recognize it. It would be as if aliens landed from Mars. They'd go, what, what's that? So the concept mm -hmm. of accountability, nobody believes in it. Because if they did believe in it, actually the American people would have a pretty good government. But this lack of accountability, it's not just members of the executive branch. It, it's, it, it's in uh, the, uh, the legislative branch as well. And to a lesser extent, the judicial branch. So you've got this endemic corruption. And it, it just it keeps feeding itself because nobody wants to get off that merry-go-round as long as they're drawing a paycheck. Larry Johnson, always a pleasure, my dear friend. We have time. We'll do another uh, roundtable with uh, Ray McGovern at the end of the week. But thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Judge. If you like what you saw, like and subscribe and tell a friend. We're up to 183,000 subscribers. Our goal is 200,000 by Labor Day. That's two and a half weeks off. And tell your friends uh, what we do. We are looking out for your liberty. Judge Napolitano for judging freedom.